I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight on a huge breaking news night. The U.S. has now killed the world's top terror target. More than 20 years after 9-11, the hunt for bin Laden's number two is now over. Al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri was killed in a drone strike in Afghanistan's capital of Kabul. President Biden addressed the nation with details earlier this evening. Justice has been delivered, and this terrorist leader is no more. After carefully considering the clear and convincing evidence of his location, I authorized a precision strike that would remove him from the battlefield once and for all. One week ago, after being advised that the conditions were optimal, I gave the final approval to go get him. Biden described al-Zawahiri as a terrorist who, quote, carved a trail, unquote, of violence against U.S. citizens, reminding he was the mastermind of attack like the bombing of the USS Cole in 2000, which killed 17 U.S. sailors. The FBI just now updated its most warranted terrorist status for al-Zawahiri with the word deceased. Al-Zawahiri was killed in a precise strike, as the president indicated, on the balcony of a safe house with two Hellfire missiles, according to a U.S. official. No American personnel were on the ground in Kabul at the time of the strike. No civilian casualties either, according to the president. The death of al-Zawahiri comes 11 years after U.S. forces masterfully took out Osama bin Laden, who was hiding, as you recall, in Pakistan at the time. Here's what President Biden says about just how long this strike took. We make it clear again tonight that no matter how long it takes, no matter where you hide, if you are a threat to our people, the United States will find you and take you out. Joining me now to discuss this huge news is Richard Clark. He served at the National Security Council under both Presidents Bush and President Clinton. Remember that he urgently warned the U.S. government about the al-Qaeda threat in the months before 9-11. And New Yorker staff writer Dexter Filkins, who won a Pulitzer Prize for his outstanding reporting on Afghanistan when he was there working for the New York Times. Gentlemen, nice to see both of you today. Let me begin with you um, if I can, Dexter, because, I mean, it's, it's pretty unbelievable to think about where we are today, 11 years later, uh, at the very least, and nearly 20 years since 9-11 to now have the death of this top terrorist leader. You've, you've written about this. You've studied the area. You've written about Afghanistan in particular. Tell me why this is so significant. Well, Ayman al-Zawahiri was, he was an old guy, and, and he was, you know, past his prime and not blowing a lot of things up, but he was still an inspiration to the group. I, I, I want to say what really struck me about the strike was he was killed, uh, you called it a safe house. It was in, it's in a neighborhood in Kabul called Sherpul. That's what's probably the nicest neighborhood in Kabul. Big, grandiose houses. It's where all the drug dealers live. Mm-hmm. And he was in a house that was apparently owned by aides to Sirajuddin Akani, who's the, who's the Taliban interior minister and a first-class uh, terrorist himself. And so uh, that, there we have it. I mean, the, the, the Taliban, uh, when the United States agreed to pull out, uh, the Taliban agreed not to harbor terrorists in their midst. And here we are. They have uh, the most wanted man in the world uh, who was who living in, in a very nice house um, I mean, I worked for the New York Times. The Sherpole house where he was was just a few blocks away. Um, and he, so he's right, he's right uh, 
you know, they're, they're honored guests. So um, I think so much for the peace agreement. Richard, I want to go to you because, I mean, the idea that, you know, hiding in plain sight, essentially, the idea of him being in Kabul in particular, tell me the significance of now having killed this number two man of Osama bin Laden. Well, it took us almost 25 years to do it. Uh, he first appeared on a hit list authorized by an American president in 1999, uh, and we're just getting him now. So uh, it, it's good that this current counterterrorism team was able to do this, but it's, uh, it's remarkable it took the great superpower almost a quarter of a century to do this. The what do you make of the reason is, of that, though? If I can, why, do you, why do you think it took so long to do that? Was it a lack of intelligence? Was it a political uh, reason? What is the reason? Well, at different periods of time, different reasons. I think during the George W. Bush administration, it was not a priority. Um, but the significance of this hit is, as Dexter said, uh, it's evidence that the, the Taliban regime that is now running Afghanistan uh, is cooperating with al-Qaeda. Uh, the number of al-Qaeda fighters uh, in Afghanistan has doubled in the last year, according to a recent UN report. Uh, so it's clear that al-Qaeda was trying to make a comeback, it's still trying to make a comeback, uh, and that they were doing so with the support of the interior minister, uh, Haqqani, uh, who is a known terrorist himself. So for all of the pledges uh, that we had from the Taliban, that they wouldn't be like their old selves, well, that all turns out to be horse buggy, and they are backing a terrorist organization, and we can expect them to continue to. Well, on that point, I mean, I, I see you chuckling, Dexter. I know it's because you obviously agree with what he had to say, but, you know, when you think about it, for the American people watching and thinking about the why now and the idea of these pledges and these agreements really being, it seems like a fool's errand at this point, or disingenuous, to say the least, what does this say about the security of Americans right now? Well, look, if you go back to the agreement that was signed with the Taliban, negotiated by the United States, begun, the negotiations were begun by the Trump administration, uh, completed by the Biden administration. Um, I spent a lot of time in Doha with the Taliban when they were negotiating the agreement. Um, I, I, I don't know how many people outside of the Trump and the Biden administration actually believed the promises of the Taliban at the time that they would not harbor terrorists. Um, but I certainly didn't. And it was, it was absolutely apparent to me that they were simply biding time and saying whatever they needed to say because they knew the United States wanted to leave. And so that, that's, kind of, that's kind of the place where we find us now. The, the, the United States con was able to, to conduct uh, a drone strike today, um, but we don't have any people on the ground or any kind of intelligence assets on the ground and uh, so well, we, we can only hope. Is it promising in the sense? I mean, is it promising in the sense that President Biden said that he was going to pull out? Obviously, did there's a lot of controversy surrounding that. But the idea of no civilians, he says, has been harmed. There's no there's no military presence and boots on the ground, and yet they were able to accomplish that. Is that in is that validating in a set in a way what President Biden sought to do, or is this an indication of something far more concerning? Well, it, it's validating for now, um, but let let's see. Let's see. I mean, I, it's hard to, I mean, Richard knows this far better than I do. It's hard to run an intelligence network if you don't have anyone on the ground. Well, Richard, when you think about that notion, I mean, you have spoken about these issues, been, been very outspoken about it and the concerns even before 9-11, I might add. Um, I wonder, when you look at this, 
Is this essentially the idea of another person will be able to rise up in the ranks? There may have been the elimination of this one person, but if it's as you both are describing, the idea of these agreements that really were not really truly agreements are going to be abided by, the idea of it happening in Kabul in particular, are you concerned about the idea of somebody else being able to just step into the role right now? I'm more concerned about the hundreds, if not thousands, of al-Qaeda terrorists scattered around in small camps throughout Afghanistan. It's one thing to find the leader. Uh, You can usually do that with a lot of effort, and you can usually be able to take him out at some point. But how do you take out 1,200, 2,400 terrorists who are scattered around uh, in small groups uh, whose names we don't know uh, because we don't have people there on the ground? We should have kept a small counter-terrorist force in Afghanistan, uh, and we didn't. Um, Some of us said if you pulled out uh, that there would be a uh, recrudescence of the terrorist groups. Uh, That's happened. Uh, And it's also, by the way, happening uh, in Syria, where ISIS detainees in their tens of thousands uh, are still organized. They're in camps, they're under guard, but they're still there too. So the story here on counterterrorism is it's not 1990s news. Uh, It's not over. It's never over. You cannot take your eye off the ball. And if you don't continue to do what the Biden administration did uh, over the weekend, uh, they will come for us. Continue to do in terms of identifying other known terrorists and taking them out as well. You're saying there's an existing list that must be marched through? We have to do everything we can, including taking out leadership. That's not all we can do. Uh, We have to have a robust program. And it can't just be a program of violence. It has to be a program uh, of counterterrorism ideology as well. Uh, Ideology is the way you win this in the long run. And this is a long game. Dexter Philkins, Richard Clark, thank you both so much. The killing of Zawahiri, a big victory for President Biden, frankly, at a time of political turmoil. So what could this mean not only for him, but also his party, about 99 days ahead of the midterms. Politics always finds a way back into the conversation. We'll be right back. While we're still learning details about the U.S. military strike that killed the most wanted terrorist in the world, We know these type of strikes can actually help a president's popularity, as odd as that sounds to even say and think about. Polling in 2011, for example, saw a majority of Americans gave Donald Trump credit for the death of ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. And Obama, he saw a six-point bump in approval after the death of Osama bin Laden. We'll see what the death of al-Zawahiri does for Biden's numbers, but it comes amid a string of good news for the president. Between falling gas prices, a bipartisan win to boost production of semiconductors, and now an apparent deal in the Senate to fight climate change and lower drug prices and force corporations to pay higher taxes. Let's talk about it now with the um, fabulous guest that we have today. I'm joined now by CNN political commentator and Spectrum News political anchor Errol Lewis, CNN commentator Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, and CNN commentator and co-founder of The Dispatch, Jonah Goldberg. I follow the 
Kyle, this part was redundant. You're all commentators on everything you talk about. You know everything you can talk about today. I have to ask, first of all, there's kind of an ick factor when I say the idea of how will this boost approval ratings? I mean, we're talking about it's still a loss of life, albeit one which is a terrorist. Um, but we do gauge and judge this in this way, do we not? The idea of what will this do because he's the commander in chief. Will this give him kind of a rally around the flag sort of moment? Yeah. What I mean, do you think? The, the rally around the president phenomenon is real. It exists in polling. Um, one might say too soon, but, you know, we're, here we are. And I think that's sort of the world we live in these days. Um, I suspect that, you know, it'll be hard to disaggregate from all the others. So this is the best week, get 10 days that of the Biden presidency, arguably, just in terms of the wins that he's racked up. So it'd be probably hard to disentangle yeah. this from all those other things. Um, and there are a lot of, like, legitimate questions still to be asked about, um, why was the head of al-Qaeda welcome to live in downtown Kabul, for example? Um, yeah, and we called it a safe house. And one of our guests said, no, 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 we're not thinking like... Some, yeah, it wasn't yeah. <laughs> like in the oblivion. They're talking right. about in the heart of an area, a well-to-do area. I mean, you're right about the... It feels too soon. And yet this is how politics works, right? The idea of the polar coaster, number one. Also the commander-in-chief factor. factor. But there is still that moment of, is that how we ought to be judging things? Laura, to your point... You know, the moral side of things, we should not aspire to live in a society where we celebrate uh, or give a president a bump of the polls for the loss of any life. And I do think that there's, it's worth thinking about that for a moment. And at the same time, one of the moments where President Biden's presidency started to go south was the pullout of Afghanistan. That's true. And the worry that people had was that this was going to make Americans less safe considering the past 20 years. I, whether or not that's founded on any basis, who knows? But this does feel like he's going back and trying to correct that. The other part of this is that it does come on a week, maybe two weeks of momentum, whether it's the Inflation Reduction Act uh, or it's the fact that um, you know we're seeing some pickup uh, in terms of where uh, we, we think things are going to go in the midterms. And so, you know, you, you, building on that momentum is really important. The, the squeamishness is, I think, appropriate, right? Um, but warriors make war. I mean, this is this is the business, right? Sure. Um, this is what you have to do as commander-in-chief. And, you know, I mean, President Eisenhower, you know, uh, helped save the world for Western democracy and was elevated to the presidency as a result. I thought it was really telling during uh, his address that the president talked not just about 9-11, but talked about the USS Cole, talked about the attacks on the embassies in Kenya and in Tanzania, making clear that this is part of a long multi-administration. Those things happened during the Clinton administration. This is a, a long-time project of the United States to defend our borders, to defend our people, uh, to, to, to take the war to those who had attacked us. And yeah. I, I think we should be grateful uh, that, it, that it did happen. Politics aside, but I, will but it I must benefit say, him or not? Who knows? I, I mean, I have to say, maybe it's just me, but... Uh, I'm a little concerned that this happened now, not because I, I don't think you know, the president did anything wrong or anything, but the idea of, did you feel that we were unsafe enough to have, I mean, Osama bin Laden was that overarching looming threat. When I hear about somebody being taken out in this manner, my immediate concern goes to, were we in danger national security wise, mm. number one? Are we now in danger yet again, given the pullout from Afghanistan, given the fact that there are um, obviously other issues domestically happening, shall we say, domestic and foreign terrorists? We've seen already that play out. I mean, does that concern you now? Will that hit home for people talking about national security? I, look, personally, I think Zawahiri 
needed to go. I mean, like, this is a guy going back to the coal. He's a lot of American blood on his hands. And so if they have the opportunity, you take it. Yeah, people can politically second guess it. They can question the timing. They did that with every president that we've had about questioning convenient timing and all of that. Um, And that's one of the reasons why you have to ask questions. This is like, did we know he was there for a long time and then he picked this time or not? I give him the benefit of the doubt. I think they had the opportunity. He took it. Um, Well, I don't question his timing. I mean, I don't question the idea of that it was calculated politically. I guess my point is, does this now raise concerns that Americans now have about national security more broadly, as opposed to the ideas of it was the economy, overarchingly? It's obviously the pandemic. It's things associated with with jobs and with other creations. The fact that this has now happened, does this now make people say, hold on, were we unsafe in the first place? You know, Laura, the worry I have with this is that the war on terror has been a drum that every president can go back to and beat anytime things get tough. And I hate to see this president who closed the door on the war on terror go back and beat the war on terror drum because you're right. It does create this psychology of, well, what's lurking around the next corner? Is the president keeping me safe? And the only person you can turn to is the president. And so I just worry that we are imputing that same psychology of the war on terror. And the downside of that psychology is that it has created, it has transmuted. We, we saw John Bolton talking to one of your colleagues just a couple weeks ago, talking about all the coup d'etat that he helped to plan. Yeah, that was a bizarre moment, I have to tell you. I mean, <laughs> yeah. really, I was like, wait, we're going to l- overlook that? What, what yeah, coup yeah, are yeah, you yeah, planning? Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's go back for a second, Jake. Go ahead. But, but, <laughs> but, but the fact is, is that we had an attempted coup d'etat here in the United States. And so I, I worry about what the long-term consequences of continuing to go back to this war on terror psychology that you are not safe, you, are, you have to be worried that there is something lurking right there uh, but yet, if you, want to, if you want to unite a country, I mean, the sad reality is when that, it's the us versus them, that seems to work. Well, look, look, something we really do need to know is a lot more details about why was he hanging out in downtown Kabul? Well, what did the Taliban do? Did they provide any intelligence, maybe quietly? Did they not know about this? Do we now have to have a different kind of a conversation with them? What does this mean diplomatically? There are a lot of really important questions here. And so for the president to, number one, take action, yes, they have this intelligence. Imagine what a scandal it would be if they knew where he was and failed to take action. That would take us all the way back to the USS Cole, right? Well, they had a little, like, model home. that They've known for some time in preparation. You mean outside the preparatory period, right? Sure. But they, they, I think they need now to really be transparent and level with the American people about well, what is going on in Afghanistan now? Like, because you're you're raising exactly the right question. Is there some growing threat out there? Did our withdrawal sort of open the door to some real problems? Or do we have maybe a quiet understanding with the Taliban leaders? Gentlemen, Errol wants transparency in Washington, D.C. A tear came to my eye. It came, didn't quite do like the one Denzel tear (laughs) down my face, but it's coming. And we're sticking around. We're coming right back to you guys as well. Stick with us ahead. Our tribute to NBA legend and civil rights activist Bill Russell, who passed away yesterday at the age of 88. A remarkable trailblazer who did what was unpopular at great personal risk. And we'll ask, who is the Bill Russell of today when we come back? So what if I told you that there was a time when you could stand up for what you believe in, no matter the personal or professional consequences, and not become a political pariah, and still be thought of as a team player, and still win in the end? I mean, win repeatedly. You'd say you vaguely saw that somewhere in a movie at one point in time, only it was real. And the man who did it was larger than life. 
At six foot ten, Bill Russell was a man to certainly look up to. But he wasn't just a basketball player. He would tell you that he was a man that played basketball. But a man, a human being first. Not more worried about playing games or winning or not losing his fan base than doing what was right. But as much as his 11 championships, 11, mind you, with the Boston Celtics and the historic marker of being the first black head coach of any major team, before he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, Bill Russell was a man who defended Muhammad Ali's refusal to be drafted. While he was Red Auerbach's dream player, he would go on to march on the March of Washington for Jobs and Freedom. He would sit in the very first row watching Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. When two black teammates were refused service at a hotel coffee shop, he refused to sit back and take it. I told Ray we were leaving. I said, because it's important to me that everybody everywhere knows that the black players decided they'll stand up for themselves. See, he knew the power of sports to shine a spotlight, even in the areas where some wanted us to look away. And he would spend his life standing up for those that he saw as doing the right thing. Now, his stardom did not inoculate him from racism. It didn't shield him from criticism by any stretch of the imagination. But his fight for equality here on Earth would earn him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And in another arena, not on Earth, saw the possibility of dignified treatment of black women in a world where no man had gone before. Nichelle Nichols, one of the first black women cast as a main character on television, depicted not as a stereotype, but I think you know her as Lieutenant Uhura. That's before we even get to her work recruiting women of color into the space program. And it's an impact that may have been cut short if not for a chance encounter with somebody well, who Bill Russell also knew. The organizer came over and said, Miss Nichols, uh, how are you? And blah, blah, blah. And he said, um, listen, um, there's someone here who said he is your biggest fan. And he's looking cherapy, you know. And, and he said, and he's desperate to meet you. Dr. Martin Luther King, my leader, is mo- walking toward me, not 10 feet away, uh, with a beautiful smile on his face. I said, well, I'm leaving Star Trek. He's, he said, you cannot. He said, for the first time on television, we will be seen as we should be seen every day, as intelligent, quality, beautiful People who can sing, dance, but who can go into space. Don't ever wonder why I'm a Trekkie, people. Mm-hmm. But she herself would find herself in controversy when she was a part of that kiss, that first interracial kiss on television. Even science fiction would not shield her from criticism there, nor Captain Kirk. But she used her platform to illustrate what could be and did so unapologetically. Now, maybe one of the reasons this feels so foreign to us now is because of how we think about politics these days. Where are those on the national stage willing to do what is right, even in the face of political backlash? Yes, there are some. 
But are we past the point where we can see past the team they play for to acknowledge one simple truth, that right is right and wrong is wrong? Is there any world here or beyond where we can expect this to happen? I mean, look at what's in the news when it all becomes about one side against the other. Where are the heroes that can make us see past our political spectrum? Maybe we are those people. Now, I've heard names recently like Mike Pence and Liz Cheney and Cassidy Hutchinson thrown out as our modern-day heroes. And I wonder if you think that they are. After all, the right attacks them as traitors, while the left insists on a purity that may no longer be reasonable. How dare you compliment or dare to compartmentalize? It's either all bad or all good. Millions of people watched Miss Nichols fly through fictional space under the banner of Starfleet. Russell wore the green and white of the Boston Celtics, but their heroism was not defined by the uniforms they wore. So as we mark their passing, I'm wondering, can we see past the red or the blue or the R or the D and find any modern heroes who simply can say right is right? Much more in a moment. Thoughts on the table on Russell. And by the way, who is the Russell of today? When CNN Tonight continues. By the way, I'm obviously Uhura, so that's already settled. Thank you. We'll be right back. We've lost two people this weekend whose lives serve as a reminder of what we're missing maybe in our national conversation. People who can just do what's right because it's right and reflect maybe our wildest fantasies of what humankind can actually accomplish. Errol, Abdul, and Jonah, the question I have for you all today is, who is today's Bill Russell? I don't mean just a basketball player, not that anyone's just. Obviously, I'm five foot three. I'm a little bit jaded. I'm jealous of a five or six foot ten person. But the question is, who is that notion of a Bill Russell that essentially is unapologetically standing up, but not getting creamed for it, not vilified and made into a pariah? Do we even have that person any longer? So I want to offer a couple of folks, but first I want to say that, you know, in their time they didn't have Twitter. And uh, unfortunately, what, what feeds these algorithms is the ability to create all or nothing and then, and then dissect us into camps around all or nothing. The us versus thems. The us versus thems, and then their thems are, are you know, and, and, and so you find yourself on both sides. The, the other piece of that is that a lot of these folks, uh, especially in politics, even at that time, never really achieved hero status until well after their time. And so... It's hard, right? Because what makes them heroes is they stood up against criticism, right? There was criticism uh, in their time, even with Nichelle Nichols, and we talked about that. But to me, I'd like to raise up two folks, um, Serena Williams, and I would say similar path-breaking athlete. And what doesn't get talked about is her work on maternal mortality, particularly Mm. black maternal mortality, which is three to four times higher uh, than white maternal mortality. And it came after her own experience not being diagnosed with what could have been a lethal pulmonary embolus when she was delivering. And so she's done so much work both as an advocate uh, and also with her incredible means to be able to take on this issue. And then another is Jose Andres, someone who <clears throat> made his mark as a restaurateur and then realized that he had an opportunity not just to feed patrons with the money to eat at his restaurants, but to feed the world. And uh, he's been doing that. And so we, we have those people. I think to ask for them to be in our politics in this particular moment of polarization is a little tough. 
And I do hope that, you know, 30 years from now, we can look back at this moment and say, here were the folks who really stood up. Here were the heroes in our politics. It's a great thought, the idea of, as you think about it, how often have we all heard the phrase that history will judge us? How will history view you? And I often wonder sometimes about whether that has any persuasive value to people, especially in politics. The idea of, because it, it, it means you have to have shame, right? That I'm going to be so embarrassed and scared that I might be judged badly one day, yeah. that I'm not going to do today what I want to do. But I don't think that shame is that motivating, galvanizing factor for people that they think about as how can I become that next great hero? Well, sh shame is the stick, but you have to keep in mind the, the carrot that Bill Russell could never have imagined, these multi-year, $100 million contracts, you know, where, um, you know, the, the, the players who might even consider stepping out on a limb on any issue, whether it's something like, you know, maternal mortality or trying to sort of ch champion a good cause or, God forbid, get involved in something that might be controversial and cost them some, cause them some problems, you know, to turn down $100 million you know, $200 million to turn down these multi-year contracts. Some of these are kids who, um, you know, either didn't finish or never really went to college. Uh, it becomes a very different kind of an equation. And it's terrible to say it, you know, but one wonders, you know, if you put it out there, would Bill Russell have been the, the, the same? You know, I mean, first of all, a magnificent player in a way that's just not even, you know, even Michael Jordan never won, you know, eight championships in a row. I mean, they dominated, you know, all of sports sure. really for an entire decade. Unheard of, almost uh, inconceivable at this point. But, you know, I, 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 my sense is that that is what's keeping so many really talented cultural figures, especially in sports, from taking the hmm. chance. There's just a lot more at stake. But I, also, I think your point was, was a good one, that there's a, there's a little bit of the sort of the, the, the nostalgia problem here. And, and we have this gauzy memory of these people. I mean, Bill Russell paid a price for the things he did. Arthur Ashe paid a price. You know, Jackie Robinson, lots of people. And it's, it's, it's a sign of their success that we think back on and say, these are sort of cultural Mount Rushmore type figures. Um, and, you know, it's difficult to know in the moment who those kinds of people are, in part because, and I think the Twitter point is a really important one, or the social media point, the incentive structure we have today is it values being performative over having integrity. Mm. It values, it rewards people for how many, you know, <clears throat> negative attention is better than no attention. Mm. We saw that in the White House for four years. We see that in all sorts of other places. And if you can get a big following and if you can get the right people to hate you, that helps you. And so you, people pick fights in an era of negative polarization, to attract allies to their side because, they, you know, Ted Cruz does this, AOC does this, lots of politicians do this. And I think one of the problems that we get is that we have, it's very difficult to ask politicians to be heroes when the incentive structure says we want them to be celebrities and performers. Well, also the idea of what a hero is. I mean, let me just be, let's be real here. We're calling people heroes who follow the law, Right. It's like that Chris Rock episode or the skate when he's talking about, you know, I'm a good father. I take care of my kids. You're supposed to do that. Right. I mean, what do you mean? Like, right. So you, you didn't have the backing in the law to try to undermine the election. You weren't supposed to overturn it. You were called to testify in front of Congress. You You're supposed up. to do that. Right. You yeah. showed up, yeah. right? I mean, these are the, these moments. Or, or uh, Congressman Liz Cheney. I mean, listen to what the Wyoming voters had to say about her. And this is somebody, what did she do? Getting this heroic, um, hero title and heroine was the idea of, uh, the election was fair. I mean, she's a very a voter who, who voted in line with Trump policies more often than not. Hear what the voters had to say about her, though. Look at what, how she's done Trump. 
She's supposed to be supporting him. She's a Republican, for crying out loud. I find her work on the January 6th committee just repulsive. She has been an embarrassment. It's a witch hunt. Hmm. You know, the, the, the only response to she's a Republican is she's an American. And in America, we have a democracy that one has to uphold because, well, all of them took an oath to it. To, to the point about sports, though, for a second, right, you talked about putting those multi-million dollars on the line. That's exactly what Colin Kaepernick did yes. when he decided to take a knee. And he lost his opportunity to continue to play football. He was blackballed from the NFL, and he took a stand on an issue that the world came around on after the murder of George Floyd. That's right. And so I would argue that he is a hero. Now, here's the thing. He's been vilified on the right. And the reality of it is that I think 30 years from now, I think history will smile kindly on him and what he did and what he stood for. But he's not necessarily getting the praise in this moment, and he put it on the line. Same with Ali, right? Ali had the opportunity to come back. That wasn't the case for Kaepernick. At least it doesn't look like that. But heroism takes a cost. It's not something that you get to just do and then go back home and, you know, you, you kind of wake up the next morning. It's something that really, really takes a cost. The, Ka- the Kaepernick example is perfect, I think, because it gives people a sense, I think, a taste of what it was really like to be Muhammad Ali when you're yeah. fighting against the right. draft board or to be Martin Luther King, for that matter, you know? Or I mean, the Olympians on the podium who held up their fists. That's right. They were not revered in time. They often speak about how badly they were treated in those moments. But you're on, I mean, you're on something, the idea of, of how history judges and where the here and now comes into play. I will note, though, one of the um, sort of most memorable Instagram posts that I've seen was of Bill Russell. And he was kneeling with the Presidential Medal of Freedom around his neck praising the athletes that, that dared to take a knee, like the Kaepernicks, like the Milwaukee Bucks as well. Stay with us, everyone. We'll be right back. And ahead, we unpack that video apology from actor Will Smith to comedian Chris Rock. See, I said Chris Rock's name, and now we're going to talk about it as well. After that stunning slap of the Oscars, as the world waits to find out what Rock thought about it, we'll take it around the table for our own analysis next. All right, the NFL has another player controversy on its hands. Fans are watching to see what Roger Goodell is going to do about it. Cleveland Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson. He's been accused of sexual misconduct by 24 women. He has, of course, held with 23 of them in different lawsuits while repeatedly denying any of the allegations. The NFL conducted its own investigation and an independent officer gave Watson a six-game suspension. Six-game suspension. Both Watson and the NFL Players Association say that they are, will, it will not appeal the ruling, but the NFL commissioner has the final say. The NFL had originally asked for a full-season suspension, so what, just what, will Roger Goodell do now? Back with me, Errol Lewis, Abdul El-Sayed, and Jonah Goldberg. Errol, i got to ask you, what's your take on this? Because I feel like, and I'm being sarcastic, I feel like there's not a whole lot of consistency in the disciplinary actions of the NFL. Am I wrong? Well, you know, unfortunately, you are somewhat right, to tell you the truth. I mean, if you look through the document, what they did was go back, as a court might do, and look back at what they've assigned as punishments in the past. And they said, well, under the circumstances, six games is about what we usually do Mm -hmm. in these kinds of cases. Nonviolent, they called it. Right. They called it nonviolent. Now, you know, that is the opposite of leadership. That is the opposite of progress. That is the definition of the status quo. Let's not change anything. This is what we usually do, and so we'll do it one more time. But why do something different? 
Well, you do something different because this abhorrent behavior will never stop unless you really punish it. And so the idea of maybe missing a season or imposing an an actual serious financial fine, which is hard to do when somebody's got a quarter of a billion dollar, you know, deal. um, Which they gave him after the allegations were already out there. I just want to put that out there. Structured it in a way that he'd get a whole bunch of money no matter what, right? But but it... it, it, I want his lawyer. It won't won't change until it changes, and they've got to make some changes. And I I think, you know, everyone watching this, I think the the NFL, which is, in fact, uh, susceptible to public pressure... We'll wait to hear from the fans, the advertisers, the sponsors, the players, and everybody else. And so anybody who has an opinion about this ought to weigh in right now because Mm. they've made clear they're not going to change anything unless they have to. To just weigh in, I mean, we just talked about Colin Kaepernick. Man took a knee in protest of police violence against black people, got drummed out of the league. Sean Watson sexually violated 26... Allegedly. Allegedly sexually violated 26 women. 26 women. And... um, and he's going to sit for six games. And the thing about it is the NFL is going to have their cake and eat it too. You're going to get a sternly warded, angry comment from Goodell, but they know how they make their money. They make their money because people like Deshaun Watson take the field. And so it's in every incentive that they have to keep them on there. And so I think they've just been handed this situation. They're going to be very, very angry about it. But in the end, they're going to say justice was done and Deshaun Watson's going to play. Yeah, there's that part of it though too. And I wonder what you think about this is the idea of these aren't criminal prosecutions. And you know I'm a prosecutor, and I think about the ideas of due process. And I, I hear a lot of the commentary people make about the court of public opinion, opinion, the Me Too movement, the idea of cancel culture, all gets conflated into one conversation around, well, why should he take everything away from him if nothing's been proven in a courtroom, not, you know, a court of law? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, there are things that you could do that wouldn't violate the law that would cost you your job at CNN. Right. There are things. There's a whole. There's a, a long list. There's a very of, long list, right? Of things that one could do. And even some of those things you deserve to lose your job. Not all of them, because you know. But anyway, there's institutions have a fiduciary obligation to protect the long-term integrity and name and reputation of their institutions. And we have a sort of a tragedy of the commons sort of way of we think about this stuff when it comes to these kinds of institutions. And I do think. It's worth not letting the players' union off the hook here. This feels like very much a um, winking, nodding, you know, NFL will get a little more grief than the players' union, but the players' union was in on this. It, it, you know, for, for critics of, of police unions, you know, it's the same sort of principle here. Police unions, I understand they have to protect cops regardless of what the accusations are, but sometimes those defenses are less defensible than others. And this is one of those cases. You also have to appreciate just the fact that the victims here are some of the most disempowered people in our society, predominantly women of color, whose businesses rely on their good name. And so Deshaun Watson, who's got $250 million, $230 million, whatever it is, he can pay every single one of them a million dollars. And then he still gets to keep $204 million. And in the end, they all go away. And so this is not going to get proven in the court of law because it's in no one's incentive to have that happen. And so given the fact that all of us, the NFL exists because all of us tune in to watch it, I think you're right, Errol. We have to raise our voices and decide that we are not going to watch this and have to sit there and realize that all of this money is being paid and spent on behalf of someone who has systematically abused low-income women of color. You know what we have sat and watched? The Oscars. We know about Hollywood and money and making the world go round. I know. We, I, I mean, I tell you, we're going to go real quick here. I want to kind of lightning round your thoughts here. When you saw the apology from Will Smith, did you go, that's the ticket? Or were you like, was that March 2022? 
Why now? Why now? Why why this um, crappy video that nobody asked for? Um, I. My impression See, how, was, how do you feel about it? My, my, <laughs> my impression was he's a pretty good actor, you know, and so he's wrestling out loud with the idea that how could I have done something wrong uh, when I know that I'm not a piece of crap? And it's kind of like, well, let's let's ask that question a little bit differently. What, why would somebody do that if they weren't a piece of crap, which mm. is the way I think most of the world thinks about still it. Still Prince of Fresh Air. Uh, fr- of still, uh, <laughs> sorry. Oh, man, it was so close. <laughs> I looked up to Will Smith when I was a young man, right? She showed us a certain way of being and uh, to see him continue to try and wrestle with this in a way that is too cute by half is so frustrating. Well, we'll see if others agree. I mean, nobody asked me. Earl Lewis, Abdul El-Sayed, Jonah Goldberg, thank you. That's it for us tonight. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now with, of course, Don Lemon. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.